Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany, both here within the walls of the sanctuary and online. It's a privilege uh, to be with you as we share. And as you've heard the scripture read this morning, uh, a bit like uh, a Netflix movie where at the beginning it says there's flashing lights and images. Just know that this story is uh, raw in revelation of uh, sexual misconduct and power abuse and those kind of things. And uh, we have folks out in the back in the foyer who'd be happy to pray with you both during and after the sermon if this is bringing things up for you. Other than that, uh, I want you to know at the outset as well, this is a redemptive story. So take a moment, we pray, and then we'll look at this together. Father, thanks that we can gather within these walls and listen for your voice. May the words of my mouth right now in this preaching and the meditations of our collective hearts be pleasing to you, Father, as you move us to become people of hope right in the midst of the messes and pain and darkness that are our lives. You are born right there. Show us that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's a phrase that recurs uh, not in the Bible, but it's my paraphrase of an arc within the Bible, of reality within the Bible. And the phrase is this, the snapshot is not the movie. So I'd like you to just say that with me. Can we say it all together? The snapshot is not the movie. And I'll tell you a story at the outset to kind of reveal and explain what I mean by that. About 10 years ago, uh, a team from Bethany went to Rwanda. We met with various people along the way. And one particular incident stands out in con- not in contrast to, but above all the other amazing stories and encounters we had, there was a woman uh, who shared her story with us. She lived in a tiny house. Uh, she's a widow. She was gang raped after watching the murder of her husband uh, during the genocide in 1994. And uh, we listened to her story of, you know, loss, grief, anger, desire for vengeance, hatred debilitating depression, days, weeks when it was hard for her to get out of bed even. Uh, And we're envisioning this story. And I'll just say to you, at any given moment, any single snapshot from that story, you know, you could look at this moment of somebody wanting to kill her perpetrators and you'd be like this. um, She's she's hopeless. There's, there's, There's no hope for her. Or depression. Really? You can't get out of bed for a week? Hopeless. Or, or desire for uh, vengeance, or bitterness, or pain, searing pain. Sometimes, just in the mid-sentence, she'd, just start, she'd break down and weep. And this is 15 years after the event. So, you know, you could create a snapshot and title the snapshot um, incapable of being a person of hope. But then, you know, she goes on and she continues her story and she shares coming to Christ and then joining a church and how Christ and the church became for her a source of healing. There were days when she was so depressed she couldn't get out of bed. And in our world, it's like, good luck with that. You're on your own. Somebody might text you if you're missing work. In her world, if she didn't show up for her obligations, uh, there was literally a village and some women would come, open the door, pull the covers off, pick her up, take her to the shower. You're better than this and send her out into the world on that day. Kind of an amazing story. So anyway, you, you begin to see this story of hope. And then she says, you know, since I lived alone, I decided that uh, my house should become the, the house containing the barrel from which children 
come after school to gather clean water. It was a purifying barrel of 60 or 80 gallons or something like that. And so all the kids came to her house every day after school. Then she said, when I learned that, you know, I saw all the kids here, I thought, well, what can I do to help the next generation live better than I've had to live? I decided to start a kids club, like a Bible club, like think Awana or Royal Rangers or whatever, whatever it was. It was the Rwandan version of that. So she does that, and then she says, and so today, uh, the kids are all waiting to get their water because they're in here and we're telling the story, but the kids have prepared something for you. We go outside, and uh, there's a a dozen kids or 15 or so. Somebody pushes uh, the button on the boom box. This music begins. The kids are singing. The kids are dancing. They're dressed in this Rwandan regalia. They're praising Jesus. There's tears in all of our eyes. It's so powerful. Not just because of the moment, that in itself is powerful. It's the moment in contrast. Do you understand? Like this is the end of the movie. Any snapshot, we would have written her off. But the snapshot is not the movie. And the sooner and more deeply we learn that, the better we are as a faith community, as neighbors, as spouses, as parents, as human beings. So Bathsheba reveals... For us, a redemptive arc of transformation that applies not just to individuals, but all of humanity. And, and as with all these women, Christ is born out, out from right in the midst of neglect, injustice, alienation, and this week, uh, sexual abuse. So that's what we're going to look at. And the context in this story is not just sexual abuse, but abuse of power. The story is a revelation that abuse of power wasn't born when the Me Too movement was created. It's been around for over 5,000 years. As long as humanity has been around and there is power in government and hierarchy, there's been abuse of power that's manifested in sexual abuse. And this story is a recurring reminder to all of us with any power <laughs> uh, that unrestrained power is like this petri dish in which unrestrained lust is born. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you get or how much you're given... There's a vast temptation to want more. It's weird. But just ask Bill Clinton or Tiger Woods or more to the point in this morning, any number of priests and pastors over the past decade. So when the Me Too movement was created with a hashtag, uh, shortly after it became a popular movement, uh, two women launched also the Church 2 movement with the same hashtag Church 2. November 2017, prompting users to share their story of sexual abuse in church settings. Houston Chronicle then subsequently ran an expose of Southern Baptist Church sex abuse scandals. Roman Catholic Church, many of you know, has been under the microscope for decades, bringing into light deeds done in darkness. Uh, New York Times cover stories that have, uh, without going into detail, I nearly threw up one morning reading the New York Times cover story of abuse of power (laughs) at an evangelical church. So the context of Bathsheba is no doubt a context for many in the church. So I'm sitting in pews right here. She's a victim of sexual abuse, abuse of power. So today, in this sermon, prayer team members in the foyer throughout 
There'll be a call to prayer at the end, a call to come forward and kneel and pray for those that you know who have suffered sexual abuse, perpetrated by someone in a position of power or betrayal or any other many forms of pain. But the darkness of this context, like this woman in Rwanda, the darkness of the context makes the light shine all the brighter because you go, look what God has done. And clearly God does something amazing, right? So uh, as we read this story, we learn that Bathsheba refuses to be defined by what happened to her. And so also, because of Christ, do none of us need to be defined by the abuse that's happened to us? I'm going to make three observations in this text which I believe will lead us to a place of hope that Christ can be born right in the midst of our deepest and darkest circumstances. Christ can be born right in the midst of the deepest and darkest circumstances. Three observations. First observation, life is hard. Let's not whitewash it. Second observation, uh, the first sentence doesn't need to be the last sentence. In other words, life is hard, but the story doesn't need to end with that. And the third observation, there's a different kind of king available. So um, I love that the Bible is this raw, right? I was talking at the break here, uh, noting it's ironic that there are places in the, in the country that want to ban Great Gatsby because they want the Bible read more in, in school. And I go, really? <laughs> Have you read the Bible? <laughs> because Great Gatsby is pretty mild compared to the Bible. And the Bible is raw, which for me is evidence of... It's truthfulness. I mean, if this book was, was intended to be like a propaganda piece, trying to recruit people into a community or a movement, this story would not be in there. But when you read the Bible, what makes the Bible ring true to me is every hero is broken. Noah passes out drunk after the flood. Abraham lies. The sons of Jacob slaughter an entire village to exact revenge for the rape of their sister. Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. Peter denies Christ, and so he goes. Bible's filled with failure, much of it very dark, but the underlying point is always the same. We needn't be defined by our failure or our victimhood. In Christ, there's a new trajectory available, and it's that trajectory that we want to consider in our time together this morning, because since Advent, for us in the North, is this time of kind of profound darkness, we find ourselves, and by the way, in Seattle even more, because we're not waiting for the sun to come up. We're just waiting for it to turn gray, right? <laughs> from, from black to gray. So there's a sense of dark. And when it's dark, like literal darkness, you lose your sense of groundedness, your sense of clarity, your sense of hope. Darkness is hard. And the story of Bathsheba is this. There will be seasons of darkness in all of our lives. But watch this. The light <laughs> will triumph. And hope can and will break through. So let's look at these three observations. Warn you at the outset. Observation number one takes way more time than the other two. So don't panic as I'm blathering on on the first point here. <laughs> we'll get to the end. Number one, life is hard. I'm just going to reiterate the story that was read. Here's a synopsis of what happened. King David lusts after Bathsheba when he sees her bathing in her courtyard from the roof of his palace. He, using his power as king, has her brought to his chambers and has sex with her. Everything the text indicates against her will. It results in pregnancy. And then uh, when he's informed that she's pregnant, uh, David summons Uriah, 
from battle. He's one of David's most loyal soldiers. Summons him from battle. Suggesting he go home and quote, quote unquote wash his feet, which is a euphemism for, hey, spend a night with your wife. Uh, Uriah goes home but refuses to have sex with his wife, claiming the code of honor in solidarity with the fellow warriors who are still in battle. And so after Uriah repeatedly refused to see his wife Bathsheba, even after David got him drunk, David sends to him, the, the commanding officer, Joab, a letter ordering Joab to put Uriah on the front line of battle and then have the cover move away so that Uriah be killed by his enemies. David, the king, the quote-unquote man after God's own heart, does that. So Uriah's out front, the soldiers draw back, Uriah is killed, uh, and then David takes Uriah to be his wife. It's unclear to me in the text whether that was pleasing to her I doubt it, but I don't know. And then the baby born of that moment of lust dies. So here's Bathsheba's story in a nutshell. Raped by a man abusing political and spiritual authority, and as a result of that man's desire to hide his sin, he has her husband, a man who prior to this was one of David's strongest and most loyal soldiers, murdered. She's now taken forcibly to be one of David's several wives, and then the baby born out of that rape event dies. I can't see Bathsheba going to a Christian rally in a stadium where this side is shouting God is good and this side shouts back all the time. I just can't see it happening. Like her life is marked by pain, abuse, and loss. Can't see her singing some of the praise songs that portray God as a God who grants perpetual immunity from suffering to anyone who has enough faith. She can't sing those songs. So Bathsheba gives us a window into one of the most important and foundational messages of the Christian life, which is this, two things. God does not, he doesn't offer us immunity from suffering. Let's just name it. Stuff happens, right? And we're not immune. Jesus said it, John 16. In this world, you will have what? Plenty, abundance, health, you know, on demand, name it and claim it. Here's Jesus, in this world, you will have, like it's a promise, not in your promise Bible, but it's a promise, in this world, you will have tribulation, and that word for tribulation is the word uh, pressure, There's, there will be events in your life that on their own, without the intervention of your creator, those events will destroy you, <laughs> in the world, you'll have tribulation, that's reality, right, but Take comfort, says Jesus, what? I have overcome the world. So I'll provide a way, not of immunity from suffering, but I will be with you in that suffering and my withness, my presence will transform you. That's this story. It's a good story. When bad things happen as they invariably do in this fallen world, some people think God broke a promise. But we sometimes implicitly create promises that God never made. Like we have a kind of a subtle contract. I tithe, I go to church, like I hand out bulletins. What's up with me? How come bad things are happening to me? That's a complaint in Psalm 73. The psalmist Asaph, he says, what? I don't understand how 
I'm doing all the right things and bad things are happening in my life. I just don't, I don't understand it. Okay, that's the reality though. Because if we, if we refuse to embrace the reality of living in a fallen world, then when suffering happens, watch this, now we, we've got a double problem. Not only has the suffering happened, but now my entire kind of faith construct is also shattered and, I, I, and I'm calling to question the character of God and how could God do this and how could God let this happen to me? Hear me, my friend died in 2013 in a para, paragliding accident and though to this day nobody knows exactly why, uh, the, the suspicion is that a, a very unlikely wind blew him back into a, a long rock wall in the Alps and he hit it and he fell to his death. Just bad wind. People die of cancer at 30. Cells mutate. Babies are born and don't live but a few days. Stuff happens. We had to name that. Because we're not granted immunity as if simply by signing a card, getting baptized, and claiming everything, we get the happy ending in every story. I don't think so. John the Baptist goes from this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to being arrested, imprisoned, so racked with doubt that when the disciples come to visit him, he says, hey, go ask Jesus, is he the one or should I look for another? Because frankly, getting arrested, tossed in prison, forgotten, and the threat of beheading, which ultimately was his destiny, frankly, that doesn't feel like the good and wonderful plan God has for my life. And he's not alone. Peter goes from I'll die with you to denying Christ and then shame and grief and then finally crucified upside down. Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes from this man of you know, great hope about a post-Christian Europe where they build the church all over again to, to uh, hanging. Sophie Scholl beheaded at 23 in Germany. This woman in Rwanda, multiple rapes after watching her husband murdered. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Don't whitewash it. Stuff happens. But, says Jesus, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So, you know, kind of, it begins here with let's name it and sit with our grief and then let's go on and understand that the grief and the stuff that happens to us is, not the, is, is never intended to be the end of the story so that we, we swim for the rest of our days in a sense of bitterness and loss and betrayal and, and victimization. That's not God's intent. There's a better way forward. Stuff happens, needn't be the last sentence. I've shared with a couple of people that preaching this as an Advent sermon is likely one of the hardest sermons I've ever preached in my 27 or 28 years of preaching here at, at, at Bethany. And not to mention, we have a, like a scholarly Bathsheba expert in the congregation. And so I went, you know, I, I, I dialed into a Zoom meeting to hear our resident expert uh, speak and explain Bathsheba. It was powerful. It was meaningful. It was good. And, but at the time, I was jet lagged. And then I took a nap. And then I woke up. And I said, here's my three points. Stuff happens. People in power to blame. Merry Christmas. <laughs> like... It's tempting. It's, it's just so dark. Do you understand? Like, it's tempting to just say, I don't have any answers. But uh, the story doesn't end 
in uh, the articulation in the book of Second uh, Samuel, the story uh, goes on into the book of First Kings. And the beauty of the story is this. Bathsheba offers a different narrative than being defined the rest of her days by tribulation, loss, betrayal, or victimization. So I'm going to tell you now the story that we didn't hear read this morning, which is the First Kings stuff. And you got to stick with me here because there's names and... It's a story, right? So you've heard, you've heard like the first half of the story. Now the curtain dropped. We all went and had coffee. We were like this. What are we doing here? It's Christmas. When's Richard going to cheer us up? Come on. Now the curtain comes back up and now it's act two, right? So in act two, here's kind of the deal. David has another son by a different wife named Adonijah. By this point, David is about to die. So he's kind of tucked away in a room somewhere, not, on, not really in, in any more places of power. He's still got the title king, but essentially isn't able to lead well. So Adonijah, one of David's sons by a different wife, uh, tries to kind of unilaterally appoint himself to be the successor to the throne, right? While David's still alive, but in rapid decline. Uh, and this will mean that after David dies, Adonijah will kill both Solomon and Bathsheba because Adonijah knows that David had promised that Solomon would be the next king, right? Adonijah knows that. So he's like, I'm going to beat this to the punch. I'm going to become king. I'm going to declare myself to be king. And then as soon as dad dies, boom, he's gone. She's gone. Problem solved. I'm the king. That's Adonijah, right? So uh, he has like a team working with him on this plot. And the team includes Abiathar, a man who served as chief priest along with a guy named Zadok. So Abiathar, Joab, uh, a nephew of David who served as the commander of David's army. And so you got Adonijah, Joab, Abiathar, all of whom is his son, his nephew, and his high priest. Now, I'm just going to stop here parenthetically because the sermon is not about David. It's about Bathsheba. But I'm going to say something here really important to hear. Uh, David's life is messed up, right? And in this moment, here's what's happening. David took one of his mighty men, Uriah, put her in the front line and had him killed because he slept with his wife and impregnated her. Talk about unfaithfulness, disloyalty. It didn't get any worse than that. And then David was like this, whatever, I'm in power, I'll cover it up. Here's Galatians 6. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, what? He will reap. David, you're going to sow disloyalty, infidelity, betrayal, guess what? Absalom, your son, he's going he's to do a coup and run you out of town. Adonijah, your other son, is going to try to steal the throne from God's preferred person, Solomon. And his attempt to steal the throne is going to be executed by Joab and Abiathar, your, your, your high priest, and your nephew who commands your army. These people will be unfaithful to you because you were unfaithful in the Bathsheba story. So let's not kid ourselves ever into thinking that, oh, there's just a little private sin. It's just a little thing. It's not true, ever. It's not, just name it. You want to live that way? 
you, we'll pay, there's a price to pay. It's whatever, I can't go there. I'm so mad at David when I preach this thing. I'm so mad. I'll tell you why I'm mad. Again, not in my notes. But as a pastor, I, I encounter this all the time. And women saying, if only I hadn't been whatever, this or this or this. If only I had, and they're blaming themselves. And I just have to say, it's not you. It's not you. It's power. It's, it's power in the name of religion. He's your boss. He's your pastor. He's your teacher. He's your authority figure. He did this to you. Name it. If we don't do that, we're whitewashing sin. Well, listen, it happened, and now David's paying a price. He's gonna, Solomon's not gonna be king unless there's an intervention. Well, there's three guys also faithful to David who were not, were not invited to the plot to install Adonijah. Three guys. Zadok, the other chief priest, Nathan the prophet, who confronted David regarding the sin, and Benaiah, one of David's best warriors. And, and so they, they realize that there's a meeting, and to quote Hamilton, they're not in the room when it happens, right? So they're not in the room, and they're like, what's going on? And then, and then Nathan discovers, aha, uh, there's a plot, Adonijah is trying to install himself as king. Now here's where, this is the point here, Right? Adonijah, excuse me, no, 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 excuse me, Zadok and Nathan, who know this, they don't go to Bathsheba. We don't know why, but they don't go. Instead, uh, excuse me, they don't go to David. I, I, I missed that. They don't go to David and say, David, someone's trying to steal the throne, Adonijah. They don't, they don't do that. Instead, Nathan goes to Bathsheba and says, hey, someone's trying to steal the throne. And Bathsheba goes to her husband Solomon and says to Solomon, someone's trying to steal the throne. Her husband, David, and says, someone's trying to steal the throne. And, and then David creates an action to preserve Solomon being king, declares him to be king. Now, what's, what's kind of incredible in this story, to me, is, she, okay, she knows that if the plan is carried out, both she and Solomon will be executed. So what, is, what does she do? Now, hear me. She approaches the man that raped her, then murdered her husband, then married her, and then raised a son named Solomon with her, and she reveals the plan. In other words, this, what this tells me is that uh, she reminds David that he'd promised the throne to Solomon. She still has a profoundly intimate relationship with David. D does this make sense? Like, she could have been bitter. She could have hated him. She could have knifed him at some point. She could have done any number of things. Instead, what? She's, she's there. She's with him. She preserves the throne, preserves the throne for her son because she's overcome her bitterness. After all that she's suffered at the hands of this man, she still has enough of a love relationship to approach him, reveal a plan. He hears her. He trusts her. He acts. Wow. That's powerful to me. To be able to be married to this man and have the quality of relationship that allows this level of approach and truth-telling and intimacy 
tells me that Bathsheba had been a victim, but didn't allow herself to be defined by victimhood. Had suffered loss, but didn't allow loss to seal her courage. Had suffered pain, but didn't allow pain to mutate into bitterness. She redeems the story because she did the work. She was like this, I'm not going to be defined by what happened to me. And can I just say to everyone in the room, you too, don't need to be defined by what happened to you. Betrayal, loss, sexual abuse, physical violence. I don't know your story, all of your stories. But I know this, that's not who you are. Don't ever allow Satan to define you by your victimization, your loss, your abuse, your failure. There's a, there's a trajectory of redemption in this story to say to you, your story also can be redeemed. So that's what we need to see. All of us need to do the work so that our story is redeemed so that we can be people of hope. And the way we do that here is there's a spirit soul body class. There's a, there are story classes where we, you know, we dive deep into our own story and, and consider how God is redeeming our story of loss and brokenness. Um, there's a longest night service on Wednesday where we come here and we lament the, the, the darkness that is a part of our lives and allow the light to begin to do a work of, of, of healing. So we're fallen people and without doing the work, our reactions to the bad things done to us send us down a path of bitterness or vengeance or toxic self-medication. But when we allow God to do the transforming work in us, like Bathsheba, we become people redemptive, preserving the presence of Christ in situations. That's God's desire for everybody in the room. And lastly, I just want to say this with 23 seconds left. <laughs> there's, a, there's a different kind of king. David uh, was a king embodying abuse of power. There's no other way to say it. I mean, he was a man after God's own heart for other reasons, but embodying abuse of power. And uh, I've already said at the beginning, power's dangerous. Lord Acton, 19th century uh, British historian, said it this way. Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And listen, if absolute power corrupts absolutely and David was powerful, watch out for Jesus. Talk about power. King of kings. Lord of lords. The government, like definite article, of the whole world will be on his shoulders. Power doesn't get any more absolute than that. And yet it was that king who said this. Hey, in the world, you know, people with authority lorded over others and use their power to indulge their appetites and their lusts and put themselves at the best table and give themselves the biggest race. Don't do that. I'm telling you, here's leadership. The one who wants to be first will be last. The one who wants to be great will be what? The servant of all. That's the leadership I came to embody. That's what he embodied. And that kind of leadership makes him approachable for you, safe for you, transformative for you, healing for you. We receive the healing power of Christ. We don't whitewash our suffering. We don't minimize our suffering. Lament is real. Pain is real. Dark nights are real. But we come to Christ. And when we come to Christ, we find this. There is a king. He's here now in you, wanting to transform you so that you can be light in the midst of a story that no doubt includes darkness. In Ohio, there's a woman named Sarah Atkins. She had the worst thing happen to her possible. 
She comes home after a day of antiquing with her mom. Opens the door, says, hey kids, I'm home. No answer. There's a mattress across the door leading to the basement. She thinks the kids are playing hide and seek. She, she opens the door. She goes downstairs to the basement. Uh, there she finds her dead husband and three dead children. Her husband had killed the children and killed himself. Uh, yeah, that's a context in which bitterness could arise. <laughs> if you meet Sarah today, 15 years later, um, she has a ministry helping women who suffer from domestic and sexual violence. She's open to free pharmacy. She teaches at The Ohio State University. Her life is free, practicing radical hospitality. She suffered unimaginably and yet was committed that the rest of her life would not only not be defined by that suffering, but hear me, not only not defined, but transformed by that suffering. So that I'm now a greater light than I was before the suffering ever happened. Do you see what's happening here? This is the gospel. The people walking in darkness have what? Seen a great light. And that light heals, transforms, fills us so that we can be people of light. Where this begins for all of us, I believe, is naming the darkness. This morning I left the mountains at 5.30 or something like that to drive down here. Dark, snowing. And just for fun, because I knew this sermon was about darkness, I turned my headlights off for just a second. Just for fun. And then I was like this. This is unbearable. Less than a second. Back on. What a metaphor. Name the darkness, because when you name the darkness, you need the light. So, you know, let's pray this morning. I'm going to encourage you to do it this way. Could I borrow somebody's bulletin, maybe, or so? Yeah, we just, in the, in the 8 o'clock service, I asked people, if you know someone who has suffered sexual violence or sexual abuse or betrayal or infidelity or any kind of loss like that, if you just put an initial on a piece of paper, come up and say a prayer for that person. And if, an, if even an initial is too vulnerable and revealing, put an X. But let's fill this with intercession for the moments of darkness in people's lives as God has spoken to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, indeed the light of the world has come But no doubt from this story, you come into dark places. And so we want to begin this morning by naming those dark places. And for every piece of paper that is dropped on the stairs here, uh, I pray right now over over that person. That paper represents pain and loss and betrayal and a story. May you bring the light of Christ into that person in a real way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.